So here's what we're doing tonight. We're going to talk about two aspects of justice tonight, all right? And I need your help to help me figure out how we're going to get through them. First, I'm going to give you some advance notice. Here's what we have to figure out later tonight. Who are the oppressed, that, like categories of people that would qualify as the oppressed? And what processes or procedures are you in charge of that you could help somebody who's oppressed? Start thinking about that now, because you know what? I did a lot of research, and I couldn't find a lot of information on how to do justice. You know, when we started doing this series, one of the things we said, well, we're not going to just talk about it in theory anymore. We're going to try to do something for a change. We always say that, and we end up talking about it in theory. It always happens to us, you know? So this week, I spent three or four hours at least researching every resource I could find. I did Google searches. I did Christian journal searches. I was trying to find an article or a book on how to do justice. Not what is justice, but how to do it. I came up with zero. Zero. Now, I'm sure I didn't do the most exhaustive search in the world. There's probably a book somewhere out there that I couldn't find. But every book or article that talked about how Christians are supposed to be just ended up talking about how much God loves justice, which we're going to do a little bit of that tonight. But I was waiting for the punchline. So, okay, great. That's great. How do we do it? So here's our contribution as Exodus tonight. Put on your thinking caps. We've got to come up with a way. Maybe ours is the way. All right. Here's where we left off last week. We, I think, reached somewhat of a consensus last week. At least we made the case and it seemed to be bought off. Here's what we defined as kind of our concept of justice. Number one, because we're all created in the image of God. Two, each of us has been gifted with dignity and worth by the creator. We finally got some agreement on that. That each person does have this worth and dignity because we have the image of God in us. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here and want to debate that, go back and listen to last week. That led us to the third point, defining justice. Because God's commandments really are looking at this dignity and worth and figuring out a way to protect it, to restore it, to make sure it's there. So what is justice? What is God's commands about justice? They're really trying to set ground rules for how we interact with one another to protect and to safeguard this dignity and worth. That's what it is. That's what we defined it as last week. Okay? So let's look at some of them tonight. There are two words that keep coming up every time you look at justice in the Bible. In fact, there are about a thousand verses on justice in the Bible. Okay? To give you some context, you probably think there's a thousand verses on everything. To give you some context, for example, there's only about 500 verses on prayer and 500 verses on faith in the Bible. That's all there is. There's more verses about justice than there seems to be about prayer. More verses about justice than there seems to be about faith. So that must mean it's something that he wants us to hear about. We often don't see them. In our intro, we talked about these two Hebrew words, mishpat, which is the word that's often translated in English as justice or to judge, and tzedakah, which is actually translated most of the time as righteousness. And they're often seen right next to each other. What type of justice? Kind of a righteous justice. One that's straight, one that kind of is we're supposed to adhere to. So let me show you an example of how God gives us words about justice. Amos 5.24, let justice, which is mishpat, roll on like a river. Righteousness, like a never-failing stream. See, the type of justice we're talking about is a certain type, not just any type. Because human beings can make up their own laws. They can make up their own rules. God's justice seems to come with this parallel constantly there. Justice that's tempered or qualified by a type of righteousness, a type of straight living. This tzedakah, righteousness, okay? 
just to give you an idea of how much God cares about justice. I don't like to cite just little verses without them being in context. Let me read you the context of what God is saying in Amos. This is the uh, word of the Lord comes to Amos, talking about justice. He says this, what the Lord said. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. This is starting in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 7. Verse 10. You hate the one and reprove in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know many of your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. And you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. The Lord goes on in verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And then he says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You know, justice has such a high degree that the Lord, when he finds that people are not acting justly, he does not want to hear the sound of their praise. He does not want to accept their sacrifice. He's saying in very harsh terms, like, get away from me if you cannot exercise justice. So the question still kind of stands for us, like, well, how do we do that? We talked about three types of justice that we're going to be exploring. Tonight we're covering two of them. Commutative justice, which is fairness and agreements and exchanges, and procedural justice, which is kind of fairness and procedures and process. Next week we're going to talk about distributive justice, which is really economic justice. I'm not going to talk about that tonight. I want to tell you that there's a couple more, by the way, that people talk about. Like There's this retributive justice. This is the one that most of us think about, by the way, when we think of justice. Like if you think of criminal justice, maybe the only times you hear the word justice in our churches is in this context, for example. You'll hear somebody goes, God loves, but he's also a just God. So that, that means he needs to also exact punishment. That seems like the only time we talk about God and justice most often. We go, oh, he's a just God. What we mean is that he's going to punish those who've done wrong because he can't just let people get off for nothing. So he tempers that with mercy and grace. And that's the context we hear justice. So that's why we get confused sometimes when we talk about how could God spend all this time talking about justice, these thousand verses about justice, and we don't really hear much about it. There's also restorative justice, by the way, whole groups of people that work to bring justice to restore communities. All right, so we're focusing on the first two, commutative and procedural. Let's talk about the first one. Could you, could you explain a little bit the difference between the first one and the distributive justice? between commutative justice and distributive justice? Yeah, commutative justice is when people are actually just fair in their arrangements with one another. Whereas distributive justice is a whole system that God sets up to preserve people's dignity to have access to the means of creating like, or living off of the land or having what it takes. Okay? So you're going to see in distributive justice, when we talk about it next week, it's a lot more to do with like giving the poor not just something to eat, but something that they can work off of and restore back the dignity of their mandate that God gave people when he created them to work the land and do those kinds of things, okay? So it's really more about like distributing equitably. 
and you'll see more when we talk about community of justice right now, like how it differs in one way. It's a pretty narrow thing at first, because for example, here's a couple verses about community of justice. Okay, start in Proverbs 16, 11. Honest scales and balances are from the Lord. All weights in the bag are of his making. What's the implication? God wants people to be honest in their dealings with one another. It's like a variation of honesty, except it's a justice that comes saying that the Lord wants people to be just in the way that they deal with one another. Okay, here's another one in Leviticus. Direct commandment from the Lord. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights. An honest ephath and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. The first one, the ephath, is a, is a measure of dry stuff. Okay? The hen is a measure of liquid stuff. So he's just saying, I'm commanding you to be just with one another in the way that you interact and do business together. That's the commandment of God. Now you might think, like, well, isn't that just like saying, don't lie, don't cheat? Isn't that the same thing? Sort of, but God goes out of his way to define the measures that we're supposed to use in trade. And by the way, the context, if you look at, like, for example, Leviticus 19, he's laying down the law about some very important stuff. This isn't in some details. Go through Leviticus 19. There's some pretty big ticket items when it comes to laying down the law. And in the midst of it, he makes sure that we know that these standards are to be done. Philip. Uh, at least the verses, those two verses, like, seem to emphasize the idea of being honest in agreements and exchanges but not necessarily being fair. I mean, like, you could, theoretically, I'm not sure, like, how this fits into, like, how this business deal is, it's ripping everybody off. I mean, he's being honest about it, and saying, like, yeah, I'm going to charge you this much for this, like, that it's not fair, like, I have, like, I monopolized on this, and now you have to suffer for it, you know? Like, uh, and granted, that could be wrong for other reasons, but I don't necessarily, does that, how does that fit into this? What you bring up is a very difficult question about justice in general, I think. It's going to lead to this. When we look at different types of justice, the way that we, we play them out differs from one another. So you could be, theoretically be right. You could use honest weights and measures, follow commutative justice, and still be doing something that is not just under one of the other areas, like procedurally or distributively, right? You could say, I'm using honest weights and measures. Like we, as a country, America, use honest weights and measures. If you want to buy our stuff, you can. Of course, most of the world can't afford it. So then you're not really being just under the other standards. Here God is trying to point out, which is a little bit shocking, by the way, not to us, because we're used to it. We're used to things. We want things to be equal and fair. But into an ancient society where the people who had the power could charge whatever they want and rig the system any way they wanted, this was a strong statement to make. That in your trade with one another, you need to be honest. And you need to not take advantage of people because clearly the people who had the power could do anything they wanted. They could change the prices, they could change the scales, they could change the weights every day. And the statement here, if you read, is the weights in the bag are of his making. In fact, even the very weights belong to the Lord. It's his command and his direction that makes this true. Okay? So at a very simple level, we might have not much of a problem with commutative justice because we think like, we shouldn't be cheating in business. All right, that's an Old Testament example. Here's one that from the New Testament, at at least at one level you could read it this way. When Jesus enters the temple in Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, 
but you are making it a den of robbers. Some people note that Jesus objected to the fact that there were all sorts of dishonest transactions going on in the temple. I will tell you as a side note, though, that that's just one reading of this because there's something much more significant going on here when Jesus walks into the temple. And if we ever make it in our series of Matthew 21, we'll talk about it. But what Jesus is really doing there, and the reason this is so inflammatory, is he was walking in basically ending the temple system of sacrifices. He was announcing himself in very messianic terms, saying not only has he just done the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, but he's gone in and overturned the money tables, not just because they're dishonest, but almost in a way saying, it's over. You will no longer need this system of making sacrifices at the temple because I am here. That was pretty scandalous for his time. So I don't want to have this verse be read completely out of context, but there is somewhat where Jesus has this sense that there's something dishonest going on in here. It's easy enough for us to understand. So here's the question for us. What about us? How do we practice commutative justice? Let's stop talking about it in theory. Let's ask the question, how do we practice it together? Because you might think, what, what do I have to do with trade? I mean, I'm just working. Somebody pays me money. Like, what, How could I have anything to do with commutative justice? What are the types of exchanges and agreements that you're involved in where you can show this kind of justice? How about tipping your servers? Okay, tipping your servers. Anyone been a server? Who's been a server? Okay, and so do you think there's an, an honest weight and measure that, that we should tip by? Well, I think that if you know, like Jill was telling me that um, in Arizona, they made less than minimum wage because the, the, the theory was you made up in tips, right? If you knew that as a customer, if you knew that that person was making less than minimum wage, then I feel that kind of have an expectation to tip at that point because now you know like this person is making less than the bare minimum and that's not fair. Okay, anyone else? Yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean I think it can even go further than just money. You know, it can go with agreements with people, with partners, with, you know, investments, with certain things like that to where you want to always, you know, be wise in what you're doing with, you know, your actions, with your behaviors, with all that kind of stuff. So you know, I think besides the fact of money, which, yeah, there's, you know, the deals that we make with people, you know, it's, you don't want to be in bed with something that's going to be, you know, harmful to yourself, you know, or, or that kind of... But it isn't just us being wise to protect ourselves. This is a commandment for us to be just to other people. So I'm going to take what you said and flip it around. Maybe right now you can't conceive of a place where you're going to be in a contract with somebody. Maybe right now you can't conceive of a situation where you're going to be economically dealing with somebody. This is more than just a commandment to be honest in those dealings. It's to, of, to make sure that the terms are fair and just and equitable to both sides. So it's not just weights and measures in trade. If we apply it to our modern context, there's so many situations you may encounter during your life. And as somebody who deals with people who are in lawsuits all the time, it's amazing how many times Christians feel like they can actually go the other way. They feel like somehow grace covers them to cheat the system if they can, to get the most that they can, to take whatever they can out of an agreement or to take advantage of another person in a business deal. So at one level, yeah, it does involve investments and partnerships and business dealings. At another level, it probably involves not cheating your way through to make whatever you can in a business dealing, okay, which happens all the time. And I understand that in this room, you're probably thinking, that's so many years from now for me. But that's not always true. 
I mean, that could be right around the corner that you have a business dealing, even if it's just in your employment situation. Did you have a comment? I just think in terms of fairness, um, you're supposed to work an eight-hour day, doing events for eight hours, and not just kind of goofing off and finding little things that will pass the time. And... Yeah, some people don't ever consider what they do with their employer as a measure of commutative justice. Your employer is paying you a wage to do a certain thing. All right? Now, you might think your employer is the craziest person on earth, or they're doing everything wrong. But I've seen a lot of people justify all sorts of behavior from stealing time to stealing resources. Like they'll just actually say, oh, you know what? They're not gonna miss it if I take this or if I do this or I abuse this. All of that is a sense of cheating the system. You're being paid a wage to do a certain thing. If you don't do that thing or you drag the amount of time it takes to do that thing or you're not actually doing it or you're doing something else on your employer's time or even if you're just walking into the supply room and raiding it every month. It's the same thing as rigging the weights and measures. It's a modern day way of rigging the weights and measures. Now, we know that separately from this, God calls us in a lot of other places for this level of integrity. Jesus reminds us over and over about let your yes be your yes. We talked about that level of integrity. We talked also about his desire that we don't have expectations when it comes to if someone, you know, give to the one who asks you. If someone asks you to go one mile, go two. Do those kinds of things. But remember, the focus of justice is not just keeping us honest. Remember, that's why we define justice as God desiring to protect the worth and dignity in every single person because we're created in his image, creates the rules of justice to protect all of us in community together. So this isn't just about, hey, God, look at me. I'm not sinning. I was very honest. This is about how do you act justly to protect the dignity and the worth of somebody else? Because when we cheat in a transaction, the harm, of course, is ours, but we're harming somebody else. And that's what the focus of this talk is, not about ourselves. We spend enough time thinking about ourselves. The focus here is how does that protect the dignity and worth of somebody else by not engaging in unjust transactions? What about the situation? I mean, I have friends now, especially, who are just starting to get into you know, the typical uh, office job where you have eight hours to fill and about two hours of work. I mean, what do you do in those situations where, I mean, literally, you know, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Go ask them for more work? I mean, how, how does somebody even sit there, if, if they sit there and say, okay, I'm stealing time? Like, what are you supposed to do? Well, if the employer has nothing for you to do, I don't think you're stealing time, you know? I think people who are doing that are kind of thinking of ways that they can do the least amount possible for what they're getting because they just realize, look, I'm getting paid a set amount. The less I do, the better. There's people that I've worked with in offices for years who their job is to deflect work to somebody else. Right? That's their main job. It comes to them and they figure out a way not to do it because they realize they're not being paid for what they accomplish. They're just being paid for their time. That's a sense of cheating the system. But there are lots of times where there just isn't anything to do and you're just expected to be there anyway. If that's part of the job, then you're okay. As long as the employer, if they knew that, they'd say, yeah, well, I'm sorry we don't have anything right now. It's okay. We'll get to you. There's always inefficiency in business itself. Look, I've seen some extreme examples I worked on a lawsuit with a company, Christians, who were bilking people out of millions of dollars. They were setting up contracts where you could invest in this great company, except the company didn't exist, the product didn't exist. All they were doing was taking the money. There is a classic example because they ruined many, many lives. I know some of you are thinking, I'm never going to be there. I'm not going to be in that place. All right, let me give you a global example. Fair trade is a global example of commutative justice. What is fair trade? You know, we hear a lot about free trade, free trade agreements, like let's just open up borders and just ship goods back and forth, right? Fair trade 
is kind of a movement that says, wait a minute, there are just some people who are taken advantage of in the way that we deal with them globally. So fair trade started as a movement. And the great thing about it, if you research the history of fair trade, it started with Christians. This was a movement of Christians saying that there are people in the developing world who need to sell their goods, but they don't even have access to the markets, which sounds like a distributive justice issue. We might get to that. But when they finally do come to the table, it's rigged against them. The system is rigged against them. We need to pay them rather than what we could get it for because they're so desperate they'll give it to us for almost nothing. We need to pay them a fair amount for their goods, even if that's not exactly always the market amount, so that we can actually deal ethically with people and help them and not take advantage of them just because we can. And it's great to see that there's this great history. Now today you've got groups like Oxfam and Amnesty International, all these groups that are jumping on the fair trade bandwagon. It was begun by Christians, and that's a great thing. I hope we stick with those kinds of things and look that it's not always about the bottom line. Yeah. I'd also say that I don't think you have to think of justice in these kinds of strict terms anyways. I mean, at some point, all things will involve some element of distributed, commutative, whatever. Maybe it's easier to grasp the problems, right, if you break it down into these categories. But I would also say that in terms of supporting this idea of fair trade, that uh, purchase things from companies that only you know do this, like the body shop does fair trade. But you know uh, there are other companies that do that, you know, clothing-wise, and it's kind of you know I feel bad going to the Gap sometimes or other things, knowing that there are companies that do in fact do this has at least for me provoked the change. Like okay. Yeah, let's, let's really do this. Yeah, and we should do it for those right reasons. Like coffee is a great example of free trade. I could buy this coffee for like cents on, you know, of, you know, just pennies. And these people will never get out of poverty. I could do that. And I could grind the deal in such a way because they are so desperate that we could just keep grinding the deal as much as we can to get it down for pennies. All right? And by the way, that is what happens with coffee. That's why if you buy fair trade coffee, they've gone to those people and said, we'll pay a fair amount that's enough for you to sustain yourself and even pull out of the cycle of poverty. That's going to be a higher number than what we could really get this for if we just really went to any other place. But we want it to be fair trade. So you might go to a place and see that there's fair trade labeling requirement, not requirements. There's new organizations that will label things as this is fair trade and I'll explain why. You may want to purchase that. It may cost you more. But that may be at least one concrete way that you could say I want to be in this if you're not currently involved, for example, in contract negotiations and in all those other things we mentioned. Yeah. It seems like to me like the people that have the most power or money have the most effect on this because it's like if like how you're saying with fair trade is it's like the people that are in poverty, they need the money. So they don't I mean they can do it on their terms, but it seems like the people who have the control or are able to get these people out of poverty are able to make the the deals you know, they're the ones that have more accountability with it than somebody who's in poverty or someone who doesn't have a lot. And that's why God laid down these rules of justice. Because the powerful, without any other rule, would just say, why would I pay more? Why would I even be fair? If I can grind you down, if I can actually even cheat the system, why shouldn't I do that? In our country, you might say, hey, that's just shrewd negotiating, right? That's exactly what we're doing. God is saying, you are destroying the dignity and worth of somebody else. You're robbing from them. That's why you're not going to do that. These rules are meant to govern us, especially us in the West who have so much more. 
so that we can be more just with those people. Because who is God really trying to protect? Them. From the powerful. Us. Now you might not feel like you're powerful, like you think, who am I? But the problem is you're part of this huge consuming organization that wants coffee for X amount, right? Or wants clothing for Y amount. Or wants to buy goods from another country for Z amount, right? And, and you would buy it for the cheapest amount. You're part of this huge consuming culture. And we may be called, I'm not saying we have to, I'm not saying to be a Christian you must do fair trade. What I'm saying is one way that you can act globally here. But I think there's much more places that we should be looking at, like the workplace example, because that's primarily what we have control over. Yeah. I mean, the idea of justice is sort of defined as like the making sure people have this dignity and worth and maybe like separate that idea from fairness. Like I don't see how that's an idea of justice. Like the, the verses you've shown so far like have really really shown to me like just but yeah, that we should be honest in our dealings with one another. Not that we should care if someone's being exploited. Like maybe that's defined under different ideas of justice. We'll put them together when you see them with the others. Because I think Jeremy might be actually right that making the distinction between them, it helps us to define them, but in the end, God is really looking for justice as a whole. What we do is when we think of justice as a whole, we usually end up going straight to justice for the poor. And then we ignore the fact that like, we have the opportunity to be just even in our work relationships, even in our business dealings, even in the ways that we buy things. Those are transactions that are going on. Like I still agree with Jeremy's idea about tipping. Like There is a normative standard of how much you tip. Like we just, we just know it, right? I mean, it's not law, but it's normative. And I've seen a lot of people who spend their time, is it before tax, is it after tax? What we're really doing is saying, you know what? Let's just, let's just deal with one another fairly in this transaction. Like you've served me and I'm supposed to pay some amount and there's nothing in this sense that pulling back this is going to do anything but hurt the other person, okay? Now, this is a narrow area of justice. So I don't wanna, I don't wanna spend too much time here because it's fairly narrow. So we'll get to more of where that dignity and worth comes from in a moment. Okay, let me move to procedural justice. This is procedural justice is justice that comes in our processes, in our procedures. The ones that we think of right away are court procedures. That's what we think of first. Like, let's be fair in court. In fact, that's the biblical examples that we find that are all over the place. So let me just give you a couple from Exodus. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give a testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds those who see and twist the words of the righteous. This one is closer to what we think of as fairness, equity in the system. But notice some of these, like you might have just like said, yeah, sure. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. How many times do we do that? Majority, mob mentality, crowd rule. So he's even, this is even in the like a biblical sense, like, don't do that. So we've got easy things like when you give testimony, don't pervert justice by siding with the crowd, but do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. Like, don't even show favoritism to the poor. We're going to talk about the poor a lot in distributive justice, but in this type of justice, procedural justice, we want everyone to have equity in the court. All right. That sounds easy. I don't think any of us are going to object to that one. Jesus cared a lot about this. 
The prophecies regarding Jesus, by the way, just to show you how much justice plays in, there are 16 or 17 different parts of Isaiah that reflect what is the messianic fulfillment going to be. 16 out of 17 of them deal with Jesus coming to bring justice. Here's just an example. Out of Isaiah. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He shall not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. You were asking a moment ago, like, well, how do we get the idea that justice is going to be protecting people in a way? Well, this verse wouldn't make any sense if Jesus is going to come to judge the poor, the way we think of judge. Like, Jesus is going to come, what, sentence the poor? No, his sense of justice and righteousness is a protective guard for the poor and the meek. That's the kind of justice he brings. Here's another way to look at procedural justice from Isaiah. You guys might recognize these opening words. Here is my servant whom I uphold. Maybe you've heard it this way. This is my servant in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The Gospels recite and echo Isaiah when they identify Christ at his baptism. It's hearkening back to this part of Isaiah that's predicting what the Messiah is going to be like and we who follow him, what we should be like. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. That's the hallmark of the Messiah. Somebody brings justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands will put forth their hope. To open the eyes of the blind to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those sit in darkness. When they ask Jesus, like, are you the one? He's like, go back and tell them. What did he say? The blind see. He preached freedom to the captives. It's all right here in Isaiah identifying the Messiah. Somebody who's going to come and bring justice. How did Jesus come and bring justice? And what is this procedural justice? Like, we get Fairness, that's easy, but how did Jesus come and bring it? Yeah. I don't understand how freeing captives from prison. I don't understand how that's just in any sense. The passage just in Exodus was upholding the justicism that put the people in prison, saying, make sure this works right and do it the way it should. Do you want to answer it? Even if we're talking about something procedural, some guy kills someone, it's on video, goes to jail. That's not a captive. I think what the sense of the word captive here is, right, is someone who's there even against their will. So, to, I mean, it's not just like, we wouldn't, we wouldn't quantify everyone sitting in jail as someone who's a captive in the same way that you would say someone um, who's a prisoner of war, someone who is uh, a slave who's been captured from some invading army. I mean, that person is a captive in kind of a truer sense of the idea, I think. Let, let me make this comment because I think it's important. There's two things that are going on in this room that's making this a very difficult topic. One is, we never talk about it in churches. We have nothing really to, to fall back on in this area. Like we're a little bit in, in kind of undiscovered country. Second of all, our concept of justice, retributive justice, keeps creeping into the equation. We keep thinking of justice as like in terms of human fairness or the criminal justice system, and we keep coming back to how is that just, but we're not really saying just in God's definition, you're saying how is that fair. And that's what keeps us 
kind of in this place where we can't get this concept. That's okay. If you take surveys of people and you ask them, like, tell me about justice, we start with retributive justice because that's what we're most comfortable with. All I'm trying to point out is, first, he sets down some rules for procedural justice, and second, a hallmark of the Messiah is that he comes to bring justice. And what I'm asking is, how did Jesus come to bring justice? It says right here, he will bring justice to the nations. Are there any justice in the nations? Where is the justice to the nations? We got the wrong guy? It's a fair question. We don't seem to have a good answer. Those who follow Christ are supposed to be bringing justice to the nations. Let's go back to procedural justice for just a second, and I'll explain. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says this, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Solomon is in the midst of exploring all the things that he learned in his lifetime. And he finds out that in the place of judgment, meaning the courts, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, where there should have been justice, wickedness was there. We live in a world where people are oppressed. Later on, he says that there was nobody there to help the oppressed. So I'm going to ask this question to us, because again, I went searching to find out how do we ensure procedural justice? Because you might think, I'm not a judge. What do I have to do with a courtroom? Where are places that we can have some procedural justice and an impact on it? Yeah. This country has some love affair with Israel to such a degree that it's there are you know, many evangelical Christian groups that send lots of money to various organizations in Israel that do terrible things to people who aren't Israelites and Palestinians. So, you know, there's something that's unfair in the you know, question of you know, resettling lands and these types of issues that are going on there. And there's also something unfair about the kind of just implicit and sometimes explicit support we give, or I mean, that some people, you know, that Christians give for this kind of activity. And part of that has to do, I think, with a dysfunctional theology that relates to dispensationalism and other kinds of weird things. But we're also, I think, in a sense, responsible for that as well. Um, so bad theology plays a part in bad justice, I think. I'm really stretching here. I just, I don't, I don't know, because this is the one area that I don't, like, you know what? It sounds like a stretch. It sounds like what, like normally if I had just heard what you said, I go, all right, let's just move on. I don't know what that was, right? In all of my searching, and I did every search you could think of like Christians and procedural justice, like I did all these searches. And you know what kept coming up? There were two things that kept coming up over and over. <laughs> was Israel, which you just mentioned, like how Christians are not doing justice by supporting a certain view and theological view of Israel. And the other one was dealing with court systems and how we're not being just in the court system. Those are the only ones that kept coming up over and over. So that's, you're on where everybody else is thinking. And I, I want to say, there's got to be more than that too. I mean, I agree. That's the big one everyone's talking about. Like if you go to a conference on Christians and justice, the subject of Israel is going to come up. Because it, it came up on hundreds of websites when I put that in. And I kept looking and looking and I kept changing the parameters and looking through different things and the same stuff kept coming up. It seems like we're obsessed with those topics when we talk about justice. What else? Let me show you some things that I think we can talk about with justice. 
here's some procedures that you govern over that don't always have to do with the last one, which is the courts. Remember, the procedural justice is here is how can we be just so that we don't have a system that favors one party over another. When we get to distributive justice, you're going to see that God will be partial towards those who are less fortunate. But notice that the Exodus passage said, in procedural justice, you cannot even be partial to the poor. Something that God is doing all throughout in other places, but in procedural justice, no partiality of any kind, not even to the poor. So what are some of the places that we have control over? Think about school for a moment. Some of you actually are in school. Some of you actually are teaching in school. There's a lot of partiality that we have in school towards people. In the workplace, in our churches. Think about how much partiality there are in our churches. Aren't there people in our churches that we just ignore? Aren't there people in our churches that we give no time to? We give no credence to? Yeah, and you can get it broader like in our immediate communities, in the state, in the courts, in all of these places, we have some ability to treat people fairly or not. The verse was talking about that everybody should be treated fairly, even the poor, in court specifically. Like That's not true. Let me show you the verse again. Because look, he says, do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Go ahead. Relating to procedure, I think first we have to dispel the notion that the courts do function in some kind of fair procedural way. Because in fact they don't. We, we do know that they, they don't today. So there are still very active ways in which Christian people can be involved in procedure. For, for example, I, we have a family member who was falsely accused of a crime that he did not commit, but couldn't hire an attorney. And you know the DA said, "Hey, I, no jury, you know they're going to convict you, so just take the deal." So I mean, I think we have to dispel the idea that our courts, in general, are even, even function procedurally. And you know this. And they weren't even back in okay. Solomon's time, right? I mean, even back then they weren't. Okay, maybe that means let's raise money. Get this guy a lawyer. Okay. Let me, let me ask it a different way to elicit this. Who are the oppressed in our society right now that need procedural fairness? Who are oppressed people? Minorities? Who else? Poor? Women, to some degree? Who else? Who's oppressed in our churches? Doesn't always have to be society. What about our churches? Who else are oppressed? Gay people? Young people, to some degree? Liberals? <laughs> we need to do justice for Jeremy, you know. <laughs> Immigrants? People who are not as attractive as someone else. Yep. People who maybe are not as attractive. Yeah. Why am I saying they're oppressed? Because we don't procedurally treat them fairly. How about people with disabilities? How about people who are just a little bit different or weird? People with tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> They're oppressed in our churches. Ash was telling me a whole story this week about being oppressed at a Christian school workers convention just for having a tattoo, right? Look, we think of procedural fairness in terms of courts, and I agree with Jeremy. Our courts are broken. I know that. You've heard me say before, you know, people will ask me, is it difficult to defend someone who you know has done something wrong? It can be. But you know what's more difficult? Defending somebody that you know has done nothing wrong watching the court system grind them, watching people go bankrupt because they can't afford our legal system, watching it roll right over them. 
So yeah, there are ways we can get involved in justice, and I'll tell you that right now in procedural justice, one way you could get involved is finding out about court reform, getting involved in just how people do it. Other people give to legal aid clinic to help people who can't even afford the system or how to get some assistance. All right, that's one way, but it's not just our courts. We have the same procedural processes, school, work. I mean, you can go to places where you see people who they're not even given a fair treatment. And for many people, work is the most important place. It's their livelihood. They're not given even a fair hearing. We don't treat them fairly. You ever been at work where people are like, certain people are disfavored and certain people are favored? You know that. There's certain people who are just laughed at. They're not even taken seriously. You know what's really sad is that happens in our churches as well. It happens in our churches all the time. There are certain people in our churches that we marginalize. We don't give them fair access to the process. So it's all part of it. And sure, you can get up to the, our communities. Some of those people we mentioned, like women, minorities, immigrants, all those people don't get any fair process. So how do we do that? How do we get involved in that? Can we do anything about it? I mean, like, for example, the easy one I already said, like, you know that the court system is unfair to people. You can get involved in either court reform or helping people raise money for legal defense. That's one way. But what about all the other areas? How do we help those people? I still think one of the reasons it's so hard to do justice is because the ideas are so big we can't break them down into tangible things we can do. Fair trade took off because people can go, oh, yeah, okay, I can just buy something that has a label that says somebody took care of this for me. But how do we act procedurally just? Is it only when somebody calls us as a witness in court that we just will tell the truth? Is it only if we're a judge in a courtroom that we'll be fair and not be partial? Or is it more about that crowd mentality too, where we'll not side against civil rights as the church did? Is procedural justice bigger than that so that it actually touches things we do in our lives? Even in the Israel debate, like, is it fair for the church to side theologically with a group of people that dispossess another group of people out of the land and knock them out and take away their procedural rights? Even if we think about that theoretically, are we doing anything about it? It's easy to just go, well, that's over there. That's not even my issue. Justice is all of our issues. What we're having a hard time with is figuring out what are we going to do. I mean, I work directly in the court systems. I see how unfair they are, and I even have a hard time thinking, how could I ever change this system? Because it's so out of control. But I'm still called to exercise justice somehow. I mean, remember we had this struggle with these words in Matthew 7.21. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, right? When we said, but only those who do the will of my Father. And we were like, what does it mean to do the will of the Father? We looked at that. In the last part of Matthew where we ended up in chapter 12, it was the same thing. My brothers and sisters and my mother are those who do the will of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? You can go back to somewhere like Micah 6.8. And one of the key hallmarks of what is it that the Lord requires of you? And the first one we read is to do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Those are the things like what does the Lord require of you? Okay, so not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to be in the kingdom, and only those who do the will of my Father. What is the will? What do you require of me, Lord, to do justice? It's a big one. Do justice. You saw, we saw at the beginning that God was saying, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your songs. I don't want your offerings. I don't want all the playing on the lute, which is the equivalent of Ryan's guitar. 
I don't want any of those things. I want justice. So that's why I leave the question kind of hanging. Is it enough when we encounter unjust systems to say I'm not going to participate in it? Or is he saying do justice? I think this is a huge sin area for the church in America. Everybody talks about it the way we're talking about it theoretically. Like, do you understand what procedural justice is? Yes, go do that. Nobody tells us how. All right, do you understand what commutative justice is? Yes, we should just be honest. Okay, move on. Let's go to the next topic. We're commanded to do justice and we're not doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I think one book that if you came across Gary Hagen, uh, The Good News for the Poor, because um, his ultimate thesis is, is what you landed on is, I think, God's answer is us. I mean, he basically comes to the conclusion. I mean, the reason he started international justice ministry is because he was there uh, at the Rwandan genocide and said, this, this is not okay and we're doing something about it. And that's, I mean, that was what launched everything he's done. They do lots of sex traffic work in, in the Philippines is their main thing. I think it is right. I think it is us. And I think my bias is, I'll probably reveal it, is we are supposed to be doing something as opposed to just avoiding stuff when we see it. I'm just going to, I'll just close with reading the end of Micah 6, 6 down to 8, because it is what the Lord requires. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly and love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Let's pray and close up. Lord, I feel so disjointed. What a difficult topic to present. And then, Lord, if it's in our delivery that's the problem, take that away, Lord. Let your spirit minister to us at a much deeper level than even our conversation can handle. Uh, let these thoughts take root. Um, let us consider this week how we can bring just systems to the oppressed, how we can step up and do things in our everyday societal structures, Lord, that we see that we need to find justice there too. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen.